This is Speakeasy Theology with Chris Green. Dr. Scott Yarbrough, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for making time for this. Thank you for having me. I've included links to your bio and your two podcasts in the show notes, so folks can follow up on you there, and I hope they will. But take a moment and introduce yourself to the listeners, if you would. Well, I am a professor of English and a, an academic administrator at Charleston Southern University in Charleston, South Carolina. I am an American literature professor by trade and by calling, and I've been doing it for over a quarter of a century now, which still astounds me <laughs> when I realize that. And my primary focus uh, originally was on American modernism, 20th century lit, and the last uh, more, than, more certainly more than a decade, I guess twenty years. One of my primary concern has been on Cormac McCarthy, mm-hmm. which is how I, I found you. Your your McCarthy podcast, and then some of the stuff that you've written, and then your guests who are you know consistently great as well. So I first reached out to you several months ago to talk about us getting together to discuss God in American literature, which I, I still want to do, and maybe we'll get to some of that today. But I thought. At least to start, we would reflect on Cormac McCarthy. I mean, that's been a focus for you for a while. He passed away two weeks ago. Yes. And given that mine is a theology podcast more than a literature one, I thought we'd talk about some of the theological and philosophical issues raised by his novels and in his novels, right? So what his novels do to us who are thinking theologically, but also what his characters are doing. Right. So I'm going to start with... Um, reference from Michael Lynn Cruz books are made out of books, which is you know terrific. Uh, you you put me onto that. You mentioned it in the podcast, and I, I read it. A remarkable, remarkable piece. And he's quoting Arnold's assessment that McCarthy's work is fundamentally religious. I think he mm-hmm. says it's a, it, there's a fundamentally religious orientation. But then Cruz adds that that becomes truer and truer over time that it's always true, but it gets truer. And I think, let me, let me read it exactly what he says here. I would go further and say that all of McCarthy's works confirm, confirm this, but there is no question that it became more pronounced with his westward migration. Hmm. Nevertheless, McCarthy's work, however much it affirms the potential for grace and spiritual enlightenment, hews closely to the night side of life. Carrying the light, as we learn in the road, is difficult because darkness seems to overwhelm it. So I have two questions about this this estimate by Cruz. But let's start with the first one. Do you agree that all of McCarthy's works are fundamentally religious? Do you agree that they become more religious the further west they go? So I think the first thing I would want to do is draw a distinction between spiritual in the Western tradition and Christian tradition notion of spirituality, Mm -hmm. as opposed to Zen Buddhism or, or something like that. Okay. Yeah. And religious, which is focusing the, uh, again, focusing the notion of what that spirituality is through a particularly recognizable, uh, modern religions, orthodoxy and, and doctrine mm-hmm. and all that. So yeah, yeah. I I do believe that his work has always been spiritual and has always been questioning 
and trying to solve big answers. But I also think in many ways it is chafed against the boundaries of conventional religious orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And so McCarthy is raised in a pretty strict Catholic household. He's sent to a small Catholic school until he graduates. And this is in Knoxville, Tennessee. So it's not one of those American enclaves of Roman Catholicism you might think of, such as Boston or New York or Baltimore or New Orleans or something like that. Uh, And without having deeply investigated this, I suspect there's a little bit of tension between Roman Catholics in Knoxville and the Protestants, uh, not the levels of kind of latter day. Um, I, I don't know, for lack of a better term, let's call it denominational bigotry. We see mm-hmm. uh, sometimes from more uh, people on the fundamental side, of the tracks uh, kind of going after Catholics, not, not maybe at that level. I don't think people are quite as bad at that in the fifties as maybe they become mm-hmm. lately, but on the other side of the coin, I do think he's, he's part of a minority, a religious minority. And that probably has some weird interplay with his ideas as well. Mm-hmm. So the, I do think he's always spiritual. And I do think as he gets older, that spirituality is more and more focused through a Christian and Catholic notion of, of spirituality. But you also, of course, do see it in Sutri in, in many ways, but there it almost seems more like an act of rebelling against strict notions of how one becomes, let's say, closer to God and closer to, yeah. to Christ himself, mm-hmm. as opposed to something like Sunset Limited, which has such a much more generous view of the serious Christian trying to help someone yeah. than you would find in his earlier work, I believe. Yes. And that I think that's exactly right. In in such a, which I'll, I have a question later I'll, I'll raise about ministers and preachers in these novels, but... Ah. I think in such a, you do get that sense in which, you know, the, the primary movers and shakers in Knoxville are Protestants. They're Baptists. Right. And there's an anti-Catholic bent there that Sutri is pushing back against. Not that he's in any kind of faithful Catholic, but that he, he does recognize he wants no part of that. So we'll definitely come to that. I definitely, I think you're right that that is a, a through line in the novel and as well as the larger work. For those who don't know, and I'm sure some of my listeners haven't read any of McCarthy, give us a thumbnail sketch of those earlier novels and then the later Western ones. And I mean, you don't have to go through every piece, but just give a sense for everybody that he does kind of have periods across his long career. Absolutely. I I even tend to break it these days into kind of four different periods because it seems to work pretty well to do it that way. So we start off with his Appalachian novels all set in the area either – around Knoxville or to the counties north of Knoxville, with one kind of exception. And these early novels, so he starts with The Orchard Keeper, which is a pretty realistic novel about a young man back there in the 30s and his trying to find a mentor, both from an old kind of uh, old man in the mountains, so to say, and a young bootlegger as he tries to replace his uh, father, who's been missing for a very long time. And it, it's the one that wears most openly the kind of Faulkner uh, influence on McCarthy. And he follows that up with a couple that really hammer in the Gothic in Southern Gothic, which is outer dark, which is really set in a kind of almost meta narrative faux South. It's every kind of Southern 
trope you can think of, but mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. in a dark, uh, very devious uh, kind of way. And Child of God, which manages to take a thoroughly reprehensible character based very loosely on a few famous kind of serial killers of the 50s. Uh, Lester Ballard, who's not only a serial killer, but a, a necrophiliac as well. And somehow humanize him and make him a, a, a true person to be considered with compassion, if not sympathy or empathy. And while he's working on those later novels, he spends, and this is something he does throughout his career, he's working on one of his great masterpieces, Sutri, the entire time. He starts it not long after he starts Orchard Keeper. So the Orchard Keeper comes out 65. Sutri doesn't come out till 79. He's been working on it. And that seems to be very much his Joycean, Faulknerian kind of opus about Knoxville. Mm-hmm. And it ends, of course, with the character of Sutri fleeing Knoxville and deciding he's not going to focus on death but life and moving on from that. And then we have a six-year break, and we come to Blood Meridian, which is indisputably a masterpiece, but it is dark and challenging for anyone who does not like blood or prefers PG-13 limits on language in their literature, they're going to find things that bother them right. in this. But it is it is an amazing book that manages to bring in all this philosophical insight with our American rapacity for violence, with our myths of self-creation that we continuously perpetuate from the Puritans to the pioneers to Western expansion. And he just challenges all of it without ever taking on a preacher's hat and creates a iconic character in Judge Holden yeah, who yeah, yeah. Is, has the kind of impact that Ahab from Melville, King Lear and Shakespeare, uh, many others we could name, uh, just a tremendous figure who we, we focus on and try to understand. He's the cipher at the center of that novel. And then we have a, another seven-year gap, and based loosely on a screenplay he wrote during this time, probably wrote while he's working on Blood Meridian as a way of venting a more popular approach to his writing, he, he starts publishing the Border Trilogy. So 1992, All the Pretty Horses is published, wins a National Book Award, catapults him to the big stage. At that point, no novel of his had, had any kind of particular great sales. They had great reviews. They were, he was a writer's writer who was recommended by people like in his early days, Ralph Ellison uh, mm-hmm. and Shelby Foote and so on. But no one's really reading him outside of the people who know their way in the inner circles of the literary community. And suddenly this book becomes a bestseller. They eventually make a movie out of it with Matt Damon and Penelope Cruz and Henry Thomas. And this is the start of a different mode of writing. It's more accessible and readable than you see in the Appalachian novels or in Sutri or Blood Meridian, which have a, such a high kind of, again, Joycean, Faulknerian, Melvillian sense of, of prose density. Mm-hmm. And you see instead the influence a little bit more of Hemingway. You see McCarthy purposely, I think, moving in new language, in a new direction of language. And the first book is a really wonderful story of this young man and his friend who kind of go on a quest to find the, you know, lost Texas, if you will, locating it kind of foolishly and naively down in Mexico where, as they say, things go wrong. Um, He follows up on it 
and when you hear it's a first part of a trilogy, you think, well, this will just tell this guy's second part of a story. The next book takes place that all the pretty horses takes place 49. This next one is set uh, years earlier in with the same age character who ends up being older just because it's set uh, earlier. It's set before world war two, where it is uh, in chronicles, the American entry into world war two. I should say it it is set before the United States enters the war. Mm. And it's about another young man who has to go on these pilgrimages and border crossings down into Mexico. And it is doubling down on the philosophical inquiry. And it has the same levels of, questioning and thought and philosophy that you see in Suchery and um, Blood Meridian. But at the same time, it's in the context of this mid-century wandering from Texas and into Mexico and back and forth a number of times while he uh, goes through a series of tragedies and challenges. And the, the book is about so many things, it's almost impossible to yeah. nail it down into a sentence. But I would say at some point it's about a young man trying to hold on to his soul. Mm. And and I think we can be convinced by the end of the trilogy he does so. So the third book is the novelization really of the first screenplay he wrote, although quite different too. And it brings the John Grady Cole a year later after all the pretty horses and then Billy Parm many years later. So you have again, the 19 year old and a 28 year old becoming friends on this ranch are working for in New Mexico just in years following World War II and when the army is buying out these ranches and their encounters, John Grady's inability to really deal with the kind of evil that people do and still believing in kind of an outdated, foolish code of masculinity, code of heroism, while Billy, who's much more cynical and has seen even darker things than John Grady has to this point, mm is trying to mentor him forward. And I, there are some issues with that, but it ends with this beautiful epilogue with Billy that is a throwback to the crossing and to the conversations about, you know, uh, are you your brother's keeper? Well, yeah, you're supposed to be that governs yeah. so much of the crossing and also yeah. the very end of cities of the plain. So we have another break from that novel in 98 until suddenly in the middle two thousands, we have this, bonanza from a McCarthy standpoint where in a row we have no country for old men and then the road and then the play to sunset limited. And the novels are much more stripped down and Spartan. You definitely see more of a Hemingway influence. Mm -hmm. They still have the poetic diction, poetic fragments, the neologisms that, that define McCarthy's work throughout, but he lost his, the kind of complex density of many of the earlier works yet at the same time, the philosophical density and questioning or theological, we might even say in some cases mm-hmm. is there in spades. And of course, sunset limited, I can't think of any works by anyone other than probably Marilyn Robinson, who's not ostensibly writing quote Christian genre end quote work mm-hmm. that is more straightforward Christian discussion. Yeah, than this true. since the days of Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's sure. And I, I definitely want to make sure we get to that Flannery O'Connor part of the conversation. But yeah, don't don't let me stop you now. Well, I was going to say, and for many many years, we had been hearing the legend, and I say we, I mean the those who we call Cormacians, people who study him as a literary subject, 
and, or study his work as a literary subject. And we've heard rumors for many years of this book called The Passenger. He started writing back while he's working on probably still Blood Meridian. I had a friend from New Orleans tell me right after the pretty, All the Pretty Horses that everyone had been seeing McCarthy in New Orleans all the time and that the next book was New Orleans novel. And then, of course, The, the Crossing came out instead. And many of us had thought this book would not be published until he had passed away. I, I kind of thought that, and I thought it was a bit of a, I'd heard it was this big, unwieldy, uh, complicated manuscript that he just couldn't quite get his hands around and fix. And then with total shock, we found out that this past October of, or I guess late September of 22, and then followed up in November of 22, we have The Passenger and then its little sister novel, uh, Stella Morris, yeah. be published as his last work. So I, I speculate that maybe they're all part of one large ungainly manuscript and that the solution to making it all work was to separate the two. Mm. and publish them separately. I don't have any proof of that, but before long, when all this work is released to his archives at the Willif, uh, uh collection at, um, uh, oh, what is it, uh, Texas State in, uh, in San Marco, Texas, mm -hmm. um, that, that at that point we'll find out whether or not, you know, my guess is right. But these books, we have a kind of reversal in style and yeah, yeah. a reversal, I would say even in doubt and questioning that we don't see in the later books. But the thing we know is he'd been writing them since the early eighties. So the McCarthy you find in them stylistically uh, in terms of its focus, in terms of the points of view is I think in many ways more consonant with what you would have expected around the time of Sutra and Blood Meridian than what you see in the later works. Mm. And so for people who love McCarthy's work, it's a great return to form. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it does make Cruz observation. It does kind of trouble that, right? In that we can't simply, because of how long McCarthy takes in these writing projects, especially what right. the last two books are, you can't simply just track his work linearly, right? With no, things up there. Not always. Well, we know the road came out pretty quickly, mm -hmm. you know, that he starts writing it when his son is probably the age of the boy in the road and he finishes it uh, pretty, pretty quickly. We also know, know, I believe no country for old men. He had written that as a screenplay, which never got produced. And he, and again, the screenplay and the novel are pretty uh, d disparate in terms of the way they tackle things. And you get the idea that McCarthy is much more willing to sell the muse down the river in film than he is in prose. But once he's putting it in prose, he's much stricter with himself. Mm. And so that one, I think, was still, once he decided to novelize it away from the original screenplay, then it's a pretty quick work for him. Okay. But the other ones are things he, like Sutri, he works on and tweaks for years and years. And there's even some indication he'd started writing pieces of blood meridian before he finished Sutri. Mm. So mm -hmm. again, and think of all those year gaps. So that's the kind of arc of the career. And then, as you say, he, he passed away, uh, here, the, uh, uh, I shouldn't know the date right off the top two, of my head. Two weeks ago, the 13th, 13th. Yes. The 13th, so exactly. two weeks today while we're recording, but I want to ask about some of the, the characters, which Wood says are theologically wounded. But let me ask you this about the relationship between McCarthy and his characters. So, you know, and you know this even better than I do, but the Stella Morris novel, the, the, the very last one that's published, 
even though I'm not sure it should be read as the last. I mean, there's some, and this is one of the reasons I'm interested in your thesis that it was one novel, because I think if you read Stella Maris last, and that's the last word, her words are the last words. Oh, that's interesting. It really changes the way you read the passenger. Right. But if you read the passenger as including having, because it's coming later, right? Years later. It, it, it puts a different capstone on that story and then McCarthy's larger work. So that, that's an interesting question to me about who gets the last word there, really. And right. Does, the, does she, Alicia, or does the, does the passenger himself? So, but we'll, we'll come to that. But there are, pat, there are parts of the, her dialogue in Stella Maris that are almost verbatim things we know McCarthy himself said from, sure. from interviews that he did kind of late in life. What, what do you make of that? Like as a reader of McCarthy, is, is that him being coy? Is, is he identifying with her in a way he doesn't identify with other characters or does he do that in some way with many of his characters? I mean, what's the relationship between McCarthy, the philosopher, intellectual, and these characters that he devises who are, you know, so intellectual and philosophical. So one of the reasons we can have a discussion like this is because McCarthy, the human being, is such a cipher. Mm-hmm. You can find no other writer of his import who's given so few interviews, appeared in so few book signings, and so few, uh, so rarely has been willing to talk about his work outside the work. I, I defy you to find anyone of his significance who has been other than J.D. Salinger after Catcher in the Rye comes out. But of course, he's a full recluse. Right. McCarthy's not a recluse. He had friends. He went out all the time. He participated yeah. in life. But I, I suspect McCarthy looked at someone like Hemingway and someone like J.D. Salinger and many other writers we could name uh, Harper Lee. Yeah. For example, uh, where the fame industry just wrecked them. Mm. And it's the old Lindsay Lohan Disney kid thing, right? If she had just had normal parents and a normal upbringing, would she have been able to become a normal adult? Probably so. But part of being in that, you become a famous, beloved person, often for for reasons that have nothing to do with your character and just have to do with your talent, mm. that it, it ruins your chances of evolving into a normal person. Now, mm. with Hemingway... We have uh, weird parenting combined with family problems with uh, mental health, combined with severe trauma from the first war, combined with, uh, you know, alcoholism. And what seems to be the the CTE problems like we hear about with our NFL players. And so he's a he's a special case all all to himself. But it's so. Hmm. It, McCarthy, we don't know really all these things, and there is such tendency for us to read into him from his character. So it's a Vanity Fair review, uh, interview and discussion about him that wants he and, and Sheriff Bell to be the same person. Mm-hmm. Yet they very clearly are not the same person. And Sheriff Bell is a man frozen by time changing and seeming shocked at how evil people are in the mid 80s. Yeah, yeah. And this is in No Country for Old Men. And that talk with his uncle, the wheelchair-bound former deputy to his, his sheriff father mm-hmm. is so important because he reminds him about the great uncle's 
shot on the porch by people who ran up and just murdered him. That's right. Uh, for reasons. He reminds him the darkness has always been there. It's been ever present throughout human history. We have a tendency to romanticize ourselves yep. and believe in a myth of civilization that McCarthy offers you is only skin deep. Yeah. And it's, it's there until you really start to thinking about, Oh, those, those ancient barbarians, the Greeks, the Romans, the, the ancient Chinese, the Celts, the Picts, uh, whomever were so barbaric. We're so enlightened. Well, which 20, which century this is a little Freudian slip for you. Which century saw the most death by bloodshed of all centuries? Well, the 20th by a long shot. Mm-hmm. And part of that's technological. When you had to walk all day or ride a horse all day and then stab with a spear, you got worn out and you could only kill so many people. Now one guy pl- can fly a plane a few hours and drop the payload and wipe out a, a city. Mm-hmm. And so the notion, though, that we have become suddenly this enlightened, pure, good people, and they were not tainted by not only sinful natures, but abjectly brutal natures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, one, uh, you know, if we, we, we get biblical for a second, you know, humankind takes one step out of Eden. And in the first generation you have, you know, fratricide. Yeah. Yeah. Killing your brother. Yep. Um, and McCarthy, I think he's a big believer in that as well. So to go back to the real question here of, is he like, I think there are parts of him that like Alicia because I think he is a genius who doesn't suffer fools lightly mm-hmm. and is irritated by people asking dumb questions. I also think in the last few years of his career, he felt in a way kind of as if he'd sold himself short by focusing on writing and not on math and physics and science. Cause he's hanging around all these yeah. super yeah. intellects and, and probably knowing that, there's there's a McCarthy, uh, I call him the super fan. He's kind of a critic, Peter Joseph, who does not care for the last two books. And he points out there's not actually significant science going on or significant discussions about math really going on. It's all about people's biographies. So McCarthy is still approaching it like a reader and writer. He's, he's taking these mathematical geniuses and their notions and reducing them to narratives mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. rather than to formula. And so... I, you know, so maybe there's some of that much in the way that Dashiell Hammett, after having done everything perfectly in hardball detective literature, suddenly wanted to be a, a literary writer and then got writer's block and froze in his own work, but probably reworked a lot of Lillian Hellman. And that's why her early plays are so good because he's mm. doing a lot of the dialogue writing with wow. her. I, um, I didn't know but, about you know, you, you perfect one thing and then you see the thing where you're not perfect and you want to yeah. move on into that. Well, you, you mentioned the bomb. And I, that is such a, a decisive part of those last two novels. So let's let's stop for a moment and reflect on that. I mean, we have this movie coming soon, the Oppenheimer movie right. from Christopher Nolan. My wife and I found a show from 2014 called Manhattan. Ah, that has a couple. It's 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 really really well done. I mean, it's almost entirely fictionalized. There are a couple of historical characters, but it's, you know, it's that kind of historical fiction. That's mostly fiction, right? <laughs> it's short. Well, it's, is that about the families who don't know what's going on at the Manhattan project? And that, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a home front kind of thing in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But it, it's exploring in both, both the Oppenheimer movie and that show are based on a biography of Robert Oppenheimer 
by Kai Bird and someone else's name slipping my mind that I'm actually currently reading ah. called American Prometheus. And I, I got interested in all of that because of the ways in which McCarthy talks about the bomb. And not only in the last two novels, of course, you've got it in the Border Trilogy too, right? Yeah, That's The Crossing. He, he literally sees the explosion out in the middle of the desert and the uh, second sun, but not the God-made sun, he points out. And then it fades away back in the darkness, and uh, it's a real, it's a real, and it, and there's a lot of debate on whether or not the cataclysm that ends civilization in the road is supposed to be an atomic bomb. I personally think that McCarthy never makes up his mind, and to me, the evidence is not is that it's not an atomic bomb because there's just no discussion of radioactive fallout and radiation burns and mutations and. Mm-hmm all those kinds of things. It's all about survival and it seems more consistent to me with a super volcano going up or a meteor strike. But I'm, but I really do believe McCarthy doesn't really care what it was Mm -hmm. and it could be any of the above. And that's one of the ways in which McCarthy is biblical in the technical sense, in that biblical narrative. And here I'm talking mostly about what we call the old Testament, but of course, there are passages, the gospels are a different reality, but right. there are passages in Acts, New Testament, that follow that style that we see, you know, in Genesis or that we see in Judges or the Kings. And one of the things they do is they allied, they leave gaps, right? There are stories that are suggestive right. and, and are suggestive in such a way that you can draw many inferences from them. Like and and even contradictory readings remain viable, right? You could see it as this, or you could see it as the opposite of that. And both are textually viable. Like it's, they're, they're possible readings. And I think McCarthy, even, and, and this is one of the places where I disagree with like, say James Wood, I think that he's got that knack somehow, even when his style is more fluid, even when he's writing effusively in, you know, say Sutri or the passenger, it's still, suggestive and allows for multiple readings absolutely as surely as you know something like the road or even the Stella Maris does so I think that, or, you know anything that's pared down it's easy to see how that might be suggestive right so that we don't get an explanation about why you know what's happened so that the world is ending in the road but I, I think it's somehow McCarthy picked up that knack and yeah. it's part of the reason he's so interesting to talk about, right? Because lots of variable readings remain possible, right? Viable. If if you think about his literary progenitors who had the most influence, and I've named all of them, Melville, Joyce, Faulkner, and Hemingway, they're all masters of that ambiguity. Mm. With, with Joyce and Faulkner, it's through a certain uh, poetic framing and effusiveness and, and, and kind of a poetic ramble if you will. And with Hemingway, it's in that very notion of Elysian. That's such a hallmark to the modernist writers of what you leave out. It's the thing that Henry James really, I think kind of starts perfecting in the 1870s and eighties in his writing that transplants into the first early writers. And you see it in French writers like uh, Guy de Maupassant. And uh, you see a little bit in Proust. So they're really Proust is let's put it all in there kind of writer. So let's take things out. Right, but but certainly it's a hallmark of what you see with with Hemingway and some of the other writers of the modernist era is what you leave out has as much shape as what you put in. And mm-hmm. if you think of a 
mm. sheet of paper where you tear a big fragment out, you know because of the overall outline of that sheet of paper what it what the borders yeah. are, what the sides is, what the boundaries are, what it would look like. But you have to still infer what's on it from yeah. the, the piece that's been torn out. And that, I think, carries through into McCarthy. And the difference, you start this with asking about the characters. And what I would say is in most of his novels, with a few exceptions, there is a, a separation between author and character mm-hmm. that is more common to earlier times in literature than in 20th century writers. Where the kid is not a in any no one would read the kid in Blood Meridian as a spokesman for the author, right? Or right. think this is McCarthy's favorite guy. There's a gap, mm-hmm. and sometimes uh, violence and acts occur at a, at a great distance, and you, you don't see that in Suchery, where there seems to be a lot of identification with Suchery's troubles with authority and the world of mid-century Knoxville, Tennessee seems very similar to what we imagine McCarthy's life was like, although we don't really know a lot of that. And part of that is, of course, he used people he knew in real life as characters, but they're a different age, the generations back a few years, yeah. but he uses them as characters in, in that novel. So he, he, all the, he keeps us at arm's length. He kind of invites us forward in that book. And so the, the urge to put a particular, person in McCarthy's place or to say this character speaks for McCarthy is often we have to interrogate ourselves. Should we really maybe as I often tell my students about literary writing, particularly modernism and and later literary writing, the goal is often not to tell you the answers, but to ask the questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's almost a difference between Holy scripture and literature. Holy scripture's goal is to provide some, guidelines and and some ways forward and literature's goal is to say well what do you think how can you interrogate it how can you look at it in these these different ways and i know for someone like you who's a, who's a scholar of scripture there's a lot of kind of there's in between there right where you can make a lot of a lot of room that uh, someone like i wouldn't be qualified as much to, to look into but McCarthy then rewards. That's one of the reasons why he rewards constant rereading, mm-hmm. constant rediscovery. Why you can have equally faithful but very different readings of certain texts. There is there is a thing I call English one hundred two disease, which is you spend all year in freshman literature saying, well, "Let's read for symbols and let's look for <laughs> motifs and yes, right, for right. subtext," yeah. and then they see it everywhere. Yeah, look the 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 hat rack looks like a tree. And that means we're trying to reach out to the ancient Norse idea of the world. No, it's just easy to put hats on a hat rack. Right. You have to be wary. And so every reading, you can't fall into that notion that every reader has their opinion and they're justified in it. You have to be able to support it with the evidence and understanding of the context and mm-hmm. what's being talked about. But once you cross those pretty simple boundaries, there is a lot of room for for disagreement, for different opinions that are equally justifiable in some cases. So the people who fervently believe it must be nuclear war in the road, I, my answer is okay, but I don't, the fact that I don't see it. And the fact you do see it doesn't really change much in that book. Cause it's not about dealing with radiation poisoning or will the Russians drop another one or any of that stuff. It's about how we treat each other once the cataclysm has come. Yeah. Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, that is, a, I think, a yeah. through line. You know, who is my brother and am I my brother's keeper? I mean, those are questions that 
McCarthy seems to return to. So let me ask you, let me ask you this. So well, I'm going to read a passage from O'Connor. I know you know it, but for those who haven't heard it from Flannery O'Connor about Southern writers and Southern fiction. And then I want you to kind of compare contrast that with okay. McCarthy himself, right? And any, any connections you want to make between her work and his, I'd love to hear it. So she says this, I think it's in a letter, but it may have been an essay, but again, it's a famous line. Whenever I'm asked why Southern writers particularly have a penchant for writing about freaks, I say it is because we are still able to recognize one, which is such a wonderful, wonderful response. We're still able to recognize one. To be able to recognize a freak, you have to have some conception of the whole man. And in the South, the general conception of man is still in the main theological. That is a large statement, and it is dangerous to make it, for almost anything you say about Southern belief can be denied in the next breath. But approaching the subject from the standpoint of the writer, and this is the famous line, I think it is safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. The Southerner, who isn't convinced of it, is very much afraid that he may have been formed in the image of likeness and likeness of God. He's very much afraid that he might have been right. Ghosts can be very fierce and instructive. They cast strange shadows, particularly in our literature. In any case, it is when the freak can be sensed as a figure for our essential displacement that he attains some depth in literature. So, I, I mean, that's absolutely certainly the case with Buster Ballard and probably Culla. But talk a little bit about what you hear there. I mean, as a McCarthy reader, as a Cormacian, what do you what do you hear in what she's saying? Where where are the points of difference or resonance? Absolutely. So I, I think there's three or four points of resonance we'll start with, which is she is raised a Roman Catholic in almost a hundred percent again Baptist and Presbyterian Georgia. And although Savannah is much more ecumenical in the way that a lot of the very old coastal cities are, like Charleston, you know, called the Holy City, because there's so many different churches down uh, mm-hmm. not far off the harbor here. Uh, and the interior of Georgia was anything but that, of course, for a very, for very long time. And so they had that notion of being, on the one hand, a little bit, in the middle of everyone sharing a certain faith, still being isolated in their view of the faith and in a way people are pretty willing to kind of make judgments based on, again, denominationalism. So they have that in common that I think one of the primary differences though, is that O'Connor is one of the few people writing. And remember she wrote two short novels and everything else is short stories. She died very young at 39 of, of lupus. And that also, I think, probably tells you why she has such a narrow focus. She writes in one of the other essays, almost everything I write is about someone trying to find grace. Yes. Yes. And that's your, that's your key to O'Connor. You look at a story and say, Oh my gosh, you're out here on this deserted road. And this little old lady and her son and the children and a baby and a mother are killed by these horrible people. This, you know, uh, escaped lunatic bank robber murderer and his two henchmen. Right. And, the minute someone tells you it's about grace and you start going through it, looking for the motifs and symbols, which lead you in that direction, suddenly the novel opens up like a flower opening up, right? Or the story mm-hmm. does, I should say. Mm-hmm. Whereas with McCarthy, we can maybe say something like man's inhumane domain 
in humanity to man and member of brother's keeper. How could I be better at that? And that helps you, but they're so much more complex and all over the place. Now, I should point out there's a really great book by Brian Gimza on the Irish Catholics in the South, yeah. published by LSU Press. And there's a book coming forth from LSU Press. And I can't remember what the eventual, the title changed a couple of times. I was, uh, I read the manuscript by Marcel Decoste, um, that is a, going to be a thorough consideration of Catholicism in McCarthy. Mm. Um, that, that has a lot of interesting things going for it. Uh, so yeah. that's going to be a great resource for anyone who's interested in these notions. So, but I do think the notion if if we change, so we have Joyce saying that Ireland is priest haunted, and yeah, 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 Connor yeah. transforms that into Christ haunted. I think we've McCarthy. I might say God haunted. Mm-hmm. I do and, think uh, that distinction is important, right? I, I, yeah. In fact, I made a note at one point for this stuff I'm writing about McCarthy, that it isn't Christological in, in really any way. Like the, the only, the only times we come close to that, that I can see are obviously sun language in the road, right? You do get. Well, the road, I, I think you have to read that Christologically to get what he's doing. And certainly sunset limited. Yeah. Well, so, but, yeah, cause that's explicit, right? I mean, they're specifically right. talking about it, but the, there doesn't seem to be, you know, that distinction between Christ haunted and God haunted. And right. I think the, even another note I made was that perhaps it's good slash evil haunted. Right. So there's one of the things that's most powerful about McCarthy to me as a theologian, reading him as a theologian is how seriously he takes evil and yeah. the experience of evil. You know, in that last novel, right. Alicia talks about, you know, having seen to the heart of the world and there's this you know, demon that's right at the heart of reality as she knows it. And you, I mean, who knows? Well, but, but, but is it a demon? Is it a demiurge from a Gnostic right. standpoint? Is it a Gnostic? Yeah. <laughs> or, or is it an angel, an archangel, you know, when they're cast to Eden, there's one standing there with a flaming sword. So they can't exactly. reenter. Is it, I I'm fascinated actually with what's going on in Stella Morris. Cause I do wonder if there's some kind of religious, uh, scriptural underpinning secretly being played there. For example, one of the things he's fascinated with is how many of the world's greatest mathematicians and scientists have been Jewish. Have been Jewish. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. on the one hand, you could say that simply a, a truthful observation and the speculation in Stella Morris coming out of, I think a book that was popular in the eighties is that there were so many Jews were so often regulated to, money counting and bank work and, and mercantile work that it, because of the kind of insularity of the culture, they became very much, you know, just great with numbers and math. And it's kind of natural. I, I, I find that very thin. Oh, yeah. And there almost seems to be also this notion of a, a God's chosen people mm-hmm. and closer to God because he, he creates them as the way, first way of leading people in the right directions. And, I, I agree, actually. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a there's such an emphasis there on on Jewishness as the chosen people of God who therefore suffer, right? Ways that draw draw out this hope. I mean, I think that's that's another deeply biblical instinct in McCarthy, right? It's that yeah. chosen is to be the one who suffers most, right? And so, of course, Alicia in those last books suffers most in some ways, and 
I, I don't want to go too far there because I think I'm pulling us in the wrong direction, but the, in a way that what's ironic about the books is that the, her last word is of course the opening word of the passenger mm-hmm. the books, but how you read, you can read, you can skip reading Stella Morris and still get a lot out of the passenger. I don't think you get much out of Stella Morris if you don't first read mm-hmm. the passenger. So I do think it is important. And it comes later, but the sequencing you point out, and the, the great irony is that her acts and I'm trying to avoid spoilers, although astute listeners probably are putting the pieces together. The, the events that she causes to unfold following the end of Stella Morris and into the opening of the passenger are all based on the ironic understanding of what's going on with Bobby, the protagonist of yeah. the passenger. And if she had had another year's worth of patience or willingness to, yes. to suffer, we have a very different couple of books here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those are fascinating in that way. I do think there's, there's some weird, there's some weird things in the passenger, which I don't think really necessarily add to it and which are maybe a result of it having been written piecemeal. And then the author just losing his, you know, in his old age, losing the ability to really focus in and deal with some of the issues that were left in there. But uh, that's another conversation. Well, and it, it goes to, and I can't remember the name of the theory now, but those names, Bobby and Alicia, right, are, are drawn from equations that are related to right. the Manhattan Project. and Right. The, the analogy they used for, for when they first started looking at quantum entanglement, right? I think you're the one yeah. who told me about that. Yeah. yeah. And the somehow, like, I mean, I know nothing about <laughs> quantum mechanics, but when I was reading McCarthy, reading those novels like I had an intuition, like these names somehow are related to that. And so I just started Googling and sure enough, soon fell into those names. And and one of the things that I don't, again, I don't understand either the math or the science of it, but in some ways those names represent how entanglement, like depending on where you put the emphasis, right? Like right. one can be true, the other is changed by it, right? So whatever I'm saying about one alters what is true of the right. other, and vice versa. That's some of what entanglement um, entails. And I I think that that, whatever his intention was, that, that's how the novels end up working, right? Because of right. the names, I think there's a clue that he did mean for that to, to work in that way. Yeah. But if you put the weight down on Stella Maris, even knowing the passenger, knowing Bobby's story, like... I think it, it reads one way and then, but if you turn around and give Bobby the last word, right. It, it puts a different kind of pressure on what she's experiencing and how she's speaking of it. Anyway, right. it's a, it's a kind of endlessly fascinating, you know, line of discussion, what's happening in those, those last, last novels. So yeah. I'm, I, I can't, I can't wait, you know, I'm, it'll go over the next five to 10 years. We'll get more and more distance from them. And right. more and more people reading them and offering insights. My my hunch is they're better than we think they are right now. The novels, I mean, but I, we'll I, see. Well, you know, when you judge a book as a critic, we have two ways we mean that. On the one hand, you have like the movie review critic, the book review critic, and you're judging it purely on its aesthetic value. Mm-hmm. But of course, a literary critic or scholar the goal is not really to say, is it good or bad? And should we study it is to explain it and analyze it. And 
even if the the books have their moments of failure from a pure artistry standpoint, again, not in comparison to John Grisham or James Patterson or, or someone like that, but in comparison to McCarthy's other work, even if they have their, their moments of weakness, that doesn't mean they can't still be endlessly fascinating to study and to unravel. I really think, I really think they're much more successful doing a kind of Finnegan's Wait thing. Mm. So Finnegan's Wait by Joyce is unreadable unless you spend your time with a lot of source books telling you what every page means. Yeah, and right. by doing that, you can work your way through it. And mm. you see that in a, a little bit lesser way in, uh, in Pension, mm. right? And Gravity's Rainbow, where you can get a, some understanding of the story and probably get some enjoyment out of it without going down the endless uh, rabbit holes he creates for you. But to truly get a lot out of it, you have to do some research and buy a guide or look stuff up online. And it's a fairly laborious process. And the question you always have with Finnegan's Wake or Gravity's Rainbow, in the end, is it worth it? What part of your need for literary art is being fed by this process? With McCarthy, I really think you can read these books without much understanding of all the references he's making and still get quite a bit out of the books by themselves. Yeah. And then when you go back, they become much richer. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And the failings are all, I would say just, you know, plot matters that don't seem to be there for any particular reason. They don't serve any mm. particular purpose. And I think some of those are purposeful and they have an allegorical side to them. Other ones are just weird inclusions that as at this point, I'm not sure why it's in there. Like the one, uh, maternal grandfather hiding gold to make them wealthy uh, in a basement. That's a very weird plot line to build in without an explanation of it mm-hmm. and a reason for it other than the fact they get to be rich and not worry about how they're going to support themselves. So yeah, it almost seems obvious, see, right? Yeah, it's easier to see how that the way they spend the wealth is interesting, like the, the difference between right. Bobby does versus what Alicia does. And yeah. that you know, if I had to defend it, and I agree, it is an, it is an odd detail, although, again, it's so interestingly told, like the way that he hides it and how they find it. I mean, it's a it's 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 well done in terms of its its oddity. I agree that plot wise, it seems odd, but I I am fascinated right by what it tells us about the two of them. Yeah. The way that well, they handle it. And right? that's the answer. So even if it's silly, goofy, preposterous cool, interesting, all the things you kind of tell students in creative writing classes, that's not nearly as important as why is this interesting or why is it not interesting? And so like you're saying now, seeing what they do with it, and especially the notion of the violin and resonance, Mm -hmm. you tie that to quantum entanglement, the quantum string theory. Suddenly there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with, with her purchase. And you probably could do things to his fascination of racing cars, which we know McCarthy shared yeah. at times in his life and loves yeah. cars and vehicles. So, Well, let, let me ask you this in, top, in terms of influence for McCarthy. You've mentioned Melville a few times. I, w- I want to talk specifically about Melville's notion of the weaver God, which right. you know, we get explicit references to in, in McCarthy. Anything broadly, like how do you think Melville has kind of been, obviously you've, we could spend the entire conversation just on this one point, but where would you orient people? I'm interested in this in part because my, 
you can see I've got a Melville tattoo here yeah. because my intellectual life began. I was raised in a in a very strict fundamentalist culture. There was really no intellectual life. We memorized the King James Bible essentially, but there wasn't much, you know, intelligence, right? right. So there was a there was a lot of uh, or there was intelligence, but not much thoughtfulness, if that makes sense, right? There were plenty of smart people, but we weren't thinking critically or discerningly at all. Mm. And there was no literary imagination, even though we were very bookish, right? Which is ironic, but it was, you know, I'm a freshman in college and our lit professor just, and this was like in a, a general introduction and it wasn't even a lit course, but he just spent a day talking about Moby Dick, man. He was probably 10 minutes into the conversation and my mind just exploded. I mean, I, I realized, I mean, I hadn't read the book yet. I hadn't read a right. line, um, but just him talking about it made me aware that there of a way of thinking that I didn't know was possible. So I went and read the book, you know, and never recovered as we say, right. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of never gotten my balance again. So when I came to McCarthy, I came as someone who I would have said, you know, Melville is hands down far and away, you know, the author I love most. And there's so many things about McCarthy. I love because they yeah. put me in that position. So talk a little bit about that broadly and then narrow in on the, this notion of the weaver God in in both McCarthy and Melville. So that period in American literary history is interesting because you've got the romantics who find a kind of approachable notion of God through nature, mm-hmm. right? And it, it's distilled and spun off into transcendentalism. So you have Emerson saying, you know, you have to understand God through understanding nature and you understand yourself through understanding your nature and your place in God's nature. And that's pretty much the key to understanding everything. And a lot of times with Emerson, we want to skip to fun essays like self-reliance and not understand you really have to start with nature and the whole idea of where you begin Mm-hmm. It's comprehending that. So in that questioning mode, then you have people like Hawthorne who are warning you about, really they're warning you about the enlightenment and the industrial revolution that it can all be science and math and not have a mystical spiritual element to the world. And again, Hawthorne's not inventing anything really. Mary Shelley's there in a much bigger way, of course, a generation mm-hmm. before him, um, really 20 years before he starts writing uh, is when, Frankenstein comes out and a lot of those great Hawthorne stories. But but what you have in the air in American literature at that time is this willingness to talk about religious matters, spiritual matters, to have novels that dig into it. So into all this, Melville starts publishing these books of South Seas exploration and adventure and hates them. Finally does uh, Moby Dick partly influenced by discovering Hawthorne and becoming his biggest fan and also changing as he's writing it by discovering a new edition of Shakespeare that Mm -hmm. blew him away. And so there are these kind of almost mythological stories at the first draft of Moby Dick is a simple seafaring adventure with some of the romanticism elements of Hawthorne, Mm -hmm. you know, man challenging nature, man challenging God through challenging the well, all these kinds of things. And, where we come down on all that. But with the notion of the weaver God, which you see coming in toward the end of it, it's a, I wouldn't necessarily call it Gnostic view because one of my problems with the, most of the 
various Gnostic disciplines is that they have such a formula. Okay. You, God yeah. had to leave. He creates a demiurge mm-hmm. and the demiurge is usually bad. And then there are the archons. And of course, the question you always have is, well, how do you account for Christ in those situations? Is he the good demiurge? Is he mm-hmm. ultimately a part of God becomes the head of this world doing what's the real distinction from incarnationist theology really are we just you know yeah, 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 yeah. dancing angels on the heads of the pens again mm-hmm. and so but melville takes this kind of it's not the deist god of you know the the watchmaker who winds the stem and sets it to going necessarily and it's not really the christian god of we deliberately have christ as our advocate sit to help us with the fact that yes the world is uh, broken and fallen and sinful and you need a way through and here's your way through as exemplified by Christ. Um, the, if Melville, it's more that notion that you, <laughs> the world's there and maybe it's dark and maybe it's bad and it's not necessarily God's job to, to save you. Right. Things are woven in and it kind of depends where you are in the loom. And of course that's referencing back to the, the Greek fates, right? The notion yeah. of um, the, Clothos, the chesis, atropos, yeah, the one measures the cord, the other one weaves it into the fabric, the other one cuts it off when it's done. So he's playing in that old uh, Greek mythology as well. So if McCarthy purposely references the weaver god in in Sutri, and then in later books he he changes it to the idea of the the cold forger as Mm -hmm. well, the idea of of God creating something in the, the smithy, and that kind of stamping out how life's going to work as well. So theologically, what I see that McCarthy likes is basically, you know, it all kind of goes back to the that most ancient of Christian kind of thought processes, which is theodicy. If yes. God is great yes. and God is good and he's omnipotent and omniscient, how then does he suffer evil to exist? Mm-hmm. I I've always thought that there's the really straightforward ancient St. Augustine answer to that is works pretty well, which is on the one hand, God is mostly doesn't want pets and robots. He wants people of free will mm-hmm. to willingly evolve and grow and, and go in the right path. And secondly, he's playing the long game of dealing with souls more than he is to mortal lives. And so, yeah, there are things like leukemia and and cancer and car accidents and and mass shootings that are horrific. But I, I and maybe this is this is where a lot of the evangelical practice that all modern Christian denominations follow gives a little bit against a lot of our teaching. Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, we're saying he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's in control of everything, which is not to say we don't have free will, but we know that God's got. He's on the throne and everything's laid out. On the other hand, we're constantly asking for him to intercede and to do all these things. And our prayers tell on us. Yeah, the the prayers usually should be a lot more about help me understand it, help me deal with it, a little less you need to do this for me, you need to do that for me. It's like Huck Finn where he said he prayed and prayed for um, some fish and tackle and all he got was a, a piece of line which wasn't any good without a hook. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and, and so since God hadn't provided exactly what he'd put on his sushi checklist, 
you know, he's, he was, he was not, he was disappointed. So there's Twain, of course, coming in with this cynicism and who it coming the generation after Melville is just pointing out the hypocrisy of people who are saying one thing and doing another, which really, of course, stands for most of the slave owning South. If no one else, yeah, a, a level of hypocrisy, people were extremely, I would say that most people in the United States were comfortable with up until the evangelical movement mm-hmm. that you didn't distinguish between being a certain level of moralizing and conservative between that and being um, Christian. And I want to get to that moralism question before we stop, but I want to read a passage from and this. This in some ways is biographical. It's just me telling you about my experience, but I'd love to hear okay. what you, what you know that I that I don't know about how these are related. So there, when I read Moby Dick for the first time, there's a passage, I can't remember the number of the chapter, but it's the chapter in which Pip falls overboard. Yeah. Drowning. And he, as he's drowning, he sees the weaver God. Yeah. It's this this great vision. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's this vision like at the, the threshold of death and I mean, I, I've returned to this passage, I don't know how many hundreds of times since then. It's been, you know, almost 30 years since I read it first. And I I want to read that passage and then make a comment about what in McCarthy reminds me of that and then see if you can make the connections for me that I'm not able to make. So he says, by the merest chance, the ship itself rescued him. But from that hour, the little Negro went about the deck an idiot. Such, at least, they said he was. The sea had jeeringly kept his finite body up, but drowned the infinite of his soul. Not drowned entirely, though, rather carried down alive to wondrous depths where strange shapes of the unwarped primal world glided to and fro before his passive eyes, and the miser merman, wisdom, revealed his hoarded heaps, and among the joyous, heartless, ever-juvenile eternities... Pip saw the multitudinous, God-omnipresent coral insects that out of the firmament of waters heaved the colossal orbs. He saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom and spoke it, and Mm. therefore his shipmates called him mad. He saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom. Mm. So that, I mean, when I first read that, I mean, I still get chills reading that passage. And I... And some of that, of course, is, I'm sure, nostalgia for the first time I read it. But it is, it's not just thematically weighty. It's not just daring, you know, daring to imagine how things came to be. But it's also talking about them in ways that's, it's poetry. And it's, it's a kind of poetry that somehow catches you up into the mystery of all of that. And when right. I read McCarthy... And again, I think this is true of those the kind of florid novels and of the stripped down ones. He's able to kind of bring that weightiness, that daring, and the poetry to bear. And it's a relig- it's a kind of religious experience reading it. Yes, absolutely. Even if there's no orthodoxy being affirmed by Melville or McCarthy, or even if, even if that orthodoxy is being questioned. And it seems to me that it somehow they're able to get at that. You mentioned St. Augustine a moment ago. But St. Augustine, I think, is the theologian who kind of best enables us or best enabled the church in in his time and successive generations to get back at that awareness of the causal joint between the creator Mm. and the created. 
that that somehow the God who is makes things to be, and we can touch that or come close to touching it. Mm. And it seems to me that's Melville and McCarthy do that both stylistically and thematically. But but mm. what do you hear there as a lit professor that I'm that I'm just intuiting or, or sensing. Well, no, I, I think that was beautifully put and far better than I could have done it. I would say we have to add to that the context of who Pip is, mm-hmm. which is here you have a novel published in 1850, and the country is just starting to try and tear itself apart over the, the notion of slavery. Yes. So we have yes. a boy who raised in slavery who gets away, is taken on as a cabin boy for Ahab, and so in the midst of all the other things going on, we have the notion of Pip's identity as a former slave on this interesting polyglot nation of nations whaling vessel. We have all this built-in critique of American empire with our three, three harpoonists who are going after the great evil white creature. Yeah. And they're all people of color, you know, it's a, mm-hmm. a South Seas Polynesian yeah. um, indigenous person and African and yep. Native American. Um, so it's it's very complicated with all that. And so into all that then also seems to say that, OK, if we want to follow that romantic and transcendentalist notion we spoke about earlier to this idea of we learn about God from nature and not just from um preachers or scripture well one of the things we see in nature is there's a cruelty to it there's mm. a hardness to it it you, you know the old seinfeld joke about watching nature documentary with the the lion and the antelope or maybe it's yeah. a leopard and antelope but he goes it all depends on who you're whose point of view you got first if you're following right. the antelope first you you go watch out the lion's hungry he's coming at you you got to use your moves cut cut use your moves right. run but if you're following the lion first, you go, watch out. He's got moves. He's going to cut. You got to, you got to angle. You got to get him by surprise. And it all depends whose point of view you've been with, which one you're rooting for, because there is a harsh coldness to nature. But what I think that more than Melville, and, and again, Melville's entire career is very uh, short mm-hmm. because when he tries to start writing literary fiction, it fails. He never had a lot of money. He gives up writing within a year or two of Moby Dick coming out. And he mm-hmm. writes a novella, which is a straightforward Christian allegory. Many years later, Billy Budd mm-hmm. and nothing else. And dies unheralded, forgotten. And 20, 25 years later, there's a resurgence and it's never gone away. On any short list now of all time, most important American novels, Moby Dick's always in the top five to 10. Always. Yeah. yeah. Um, the... So all that is to say then that we, we take that – what McCarthy does differently, though, is I believe there is this notion that on the one hand, nature seems cruel and cold and horrible. But in humans, you have the one animal that can sacrifice itself yeah. willingly and repeatedly over and over mm-hmm. again yeah. and that is willing to die for others, willing to give unto others so though it – destroy them when they give. And although we have this endless Darwinian mindless capacity for, for greed and blood and violence and murder and all the horrible things that we do to each other, there's also the part of us that will go out of our way to do a kindness, to listen to someone, to, to help someone out. And although we 
have to eat. We have to go to the bathroom. We have to sleep. We have all these parts of us that are the body that is, there's also the part of us that's the soul and the heart, like Yeats talks about mm-hmm. in his poem, Selling to Byzantium. You know, it's a, the, that part of us is tied to a dying animal, but the yeah. soul can clap and sing, which in that poem, he's talking about art. And of course, that's what McCarthy does as well. And to go back to another question you asked, ultimately you can have all the great theological notions you want and it can still fall totally flat on a page and be unreadable, bad yep. philosophy. Yep. Or you can have all the plot, all the characterization elements figured out you want. But there is really with the greatest writers, this mysterious alchemy where somehow it all works. And it, yeah. it's it's really about craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we have with McCarthy is his willingness to go back and edit and edit and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite so that until he gets exactly the way he sees it. And maybe he never quite got there on the passenger and it ends up being rushed a little by the publisher, um, which charitably would say they, they've known for a time how ill he was and maybe they just want him to have some success mm-hmm. while he's still with us and not have it all be posthumously or, or for these last two books. I mean, mm-hmm. um, or something more, but I do think there's something going on in his work that is about that kind of what Faulkner called a human heart in conflict with itself. And yeah. that, that part of humanity that is reaching for something Christ-like that is the tiny thread of something silver yeah, yeah. in the middle of all this darkness. Yeah. And I think that's, to me, that's part of what, you know, the, I, I think I shared it with you, but Yair Zakovich, who's a, he's retired now, but he was a professor of old Testament at Hebrew university of Jerusalem. Hmm. And he has this, I mean, he's a kind of one of the leading figures in literary readings of scripture uh, in the last generation. And he has this summary of Israel scripture. So the text that in the Protestant Bible, right, we start with Genesis and end with Malachi, right? In Hebrew scripture, you start with Genesis and end with Kings. And so it's a, it's a different trajectory, but, Regardless, the, the point holds. Zakovich says that it is a that story, one big large story, is a sad one that has only the faintest spark of hope, hmm. and in the end, the hope is extinguished. But then, it's reawakened by the fact that there is a reading community reading this hopeless story or this almost hopeless story, and that that therefore makes it hope literature. Hmm. Right? That precisely because it's not, it's showing you that hope is just that little one silver thread in, in this right. whole history. And in the end of the story, that thread seems to be missing. But the fact that there's a community of Jews still reading these texts yeah. tells you that the silver thread is there, but now it's in you. It's in you, the reader. Yeah. Right? Yeah, well, I they're carrying, the, carrying the fire, you could almost say. Exactly. I think that's exactly, you know, that dream at the end of No Country, right? Yeah. And he sees his father carrying fire in the horn, right? Right. Like that over and over and over, it seems to me that McCarthy pushes us to this extreme, extreme of darkness and evil and confusion. And then there is that spark, right? That spark of hope. And sometimes that's taken away. And yet here you and I are reading it, right? And so I I think that's why for me, I, I don't find, you know, McCarthy as, endlessly dark and hopeless. I think there's yeah. a lot of darkness there, but that just is in service of that silver thread. Right. Well, and without going into the details of blood and Meridian, 
there seems to be a place in that book where by having not totally given himself over to darkness and evil, the, the kid, the protagonist of the novel has kind of survived this fire that destroys everyone else. And then in the end, it seems, or actually not. And this figure of Luciferian figure Mm -hmm. of, you know, of evil and darkness and, unchecked intellect and all these things that the judge stands for is at the end, he's dancing and he says he'll live forever. I'll live forever. Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't change the fact that there was a certain time where the kid did resist and didn't become one of his minions. And regardless of where he is in terms of the mortal sphere, by the end of the book, even if darkness and evil and that part of humankind is always going to be there because it's, baked into our fallen nature, it doesn't mean there isn't a, a way to argue against it from this been made pretty clear from Genesis. And I would say made most significant in the gospels and, mm-hmm. and throughout. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just about, will we, there's this, the question that comes in the crossing and it comes up again in the, uh, the end of cities of the plain and then is really uh, hit again in sunset limited, you know, uh, will you stand for that man? It was your brother. Will you listen to him? Mm-hmm. And you see the attempts to do that. And, yeah. and I would argue for people who uh, on the internet, there've been people who've been a little disappointed that there seems to be more of an anti-religious nature to those last two books. Well, there's, there is some anti-religiosity, but there's not anti-spirituality. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we have, almost the opposite happening in the passenger where we have well, I mean, in the end, he's a monk essentially. Yeah. Right? And well, there's, he's either talking to a ghost or a hallucination. Yes. Um, and in another place, he's talking to either a hallucination or something more. Yes. And, and uh, you have to ask yourself, so why is McCarthy putting those scenes in the book? What are the purposes here mm-hmm. and how are they meant to be read? And it much like we don't really know if the judge is something supernatural or if he's just playing with the ambiguity. I think it's pretty clear he seems to be, but there's certainly no proof of that ever. Mm. Uh, in the same case with the passenger, you could read it as sleep deprived hallucinations. You could read it as true visitations and it does change things, but they're both working pretty well. Yeah. So. Last question for you, Scott, thank you for doing this. So one of the problems I think we're up against in, at least in the circles I move in is a kind of moralism that's tied to, philosophical and theological simplicities right? that makes works like McCarthy's or O'Connor's or Melville's like reading literature and poetry. And if I can put it this bluntly, the more poetic and thematically demanding, the more allergic we tend to be to it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, what would you say to folks who are, interested, but haven't really, I mean, I, I know I have so many students, so many colleagues who will say to me, you know, I haven't read a novel or I haven't read a novel in a decade, or I don't remember yeah. the last time. Right, so they're reading theology, they're reading biblical studies, they're reading perhaps even philosophy, but they're not reading literature. Rather than telling us what to read, what tell us why we should, right? For those who are theologians or pastors or ministers, um, I mean, I, rather than give us a list of, hey, read these books, like talk to us a little bit about why we should give ourselves to that. 
this may be a more complicated answer than you're looking for, but I hope I'm heading in the right direction. Well, I like it. That's great. That's a great response. We're, we're at a place in American history where there are more books available because it's not only what's in your local library and local bookstore, and those, frankly, are diminishing, and it's sad to see. Mm. But there's an immensity available to you online through e-readers, through the Internet. We have constant blog posts, constant TikTok videos, or as I like to, te- to tease my teenage daughters, you know, Tickagram and Instatalk posts <laughs> that are often overly simplistic and, for mm. lack of a more technical term, just downright stupid in mm. their readiness to offer judgment and praise without any thought whatsoever. And we're inundated. So the need to discern and get outside of our echo chambers. So right now you can choose the lineup of channels you wish to be exposed to in television or in online reading or through Twitter simply by what you quote follow or what you check into every night. If you have a a very conservative right wing point of view, then you only watch Fox. Yeah. Yeah. And to put that when we were kids, you had Walter Conkright who goes to Vietnam and says, well, this is about hearts and minds. We've already lost this war. Mm. And people who, you know, this is a guy, one of Murrow's boys who landed at D-Day and he's got authority. He's got moral authority when he says that. And so even if you disagreed with him, you had to hear that and it gave you something to think about. Mm-hmm. And with the explosion of media in every way and the fact that many of the people who run these media channels, they're just in pursuit of the dollar, yeah. not in pursuit of the truth or doing what's right. Mm-hmm. And very often in both cases, they achieve the stand on these high moral podiums as if they're the arbiters of what's good and bad. And other people are just wrong and horrible to not agree with their, their point of view on things. So everyone just signs up for, okay, if you're liberal, you're going to read the New York times, you're going to watch MSNBC, you're going to, Read these listen to these people on Twitter or whatever. And if you're conservative, you're going to do Fox News. You're going to do, um, I don't know, Wall Street Journal seems to not be always following the the standard. So people don't want to be challenged and made to think. Well, so we go back then to the image of Christ. And if you're trying to draw what are his most profound characteristics, leaving aside the obvious ones, you know, the incarnation of God on earth, the the figure of the Trinity, leaving that aside, doesn't it all come down to empathy? Mm. He sees what we all do and he's tortured to death. He's treated horribly. And he doesn't do what most of us would do, which is our father art in heaven, rain hellfire down on them. They're really horrible. Let's start over again. Like you did after Noah, these people just, just suck. Mm. Let's go on. Um, He doesn't do that. It's forgive them. They know what they do because he's been one of us. He's lived as us. He had, sympathy, compassion, and and most profoundly empathy. So Mm. it's through reading things that make you think and question that you learn to not take everything at first glance, to think everyone's got a story, to practice empathy, to hear how things might be told from another point of view. So you get a story by Kurt Vonnegut, which is about a weird pseudo science fiction, pseudo allegorical story about his experiences being at Dresden when it's firebombed in Germany as a prisoner of war yeah. in World War II and more people dying from that than died at Hiroshima Yeah, in the, in the early days. I think probably radiation poisoning eventually even score. But 
we learn empathy through thinking as, you know, the biggest villains. Here's a, a an American writer who's dealing with the biggest villains of all time in terms of, of our media with the, with the Nazis who are very rightfully vilified and who are horrific uh, with what they did. But he still shows some empathy and seeing things as that notion mm-hmm. that instead of just having this automated reaction, we should have a human reaction yeah, 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 to yeah. things and not just say, we do it this way because it's the rules, but we also do it this way because we've thought about it and there's a moral instinct. And so if you, you know, it's the old, uh, if the cashier gives you $20 too much back and no one's around to judge you, do you give the money back or do you keep it? And even if you don't believe God is there to judge you, do you give it back or do you keep it? Why are you doing that? And I think you're right. We simplify these moral notions which even a close reading of scripture would certainly disabuse you of doing. Yes. Or yes how do yes. you deal with how do you deal with David? Yeah. Or Solomon or or Job or Lot if you have these very simplistic notions yeah. of of moralism and it's not incredibly complicated by your humanity inside you. Um, yeah, yeah I, I completely agree. I think there's that there's this one of my favorite scenes in Suchery because it's so evocative for me he goes up to a black church, a Negro church, as he says in the book and listens to them sing. Yeah. And he, he, and then he talks, you know, about sitting away. So sometimes he attends and I guess at other times he sits in, in hearing distance and he talks about adumbrations of the spirit, right? Like there, there's a way in which something is being vaguely summoned in him just by being yeah. around. And I think the, it, yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think, um, it's that kind of thing which people tend to skip or just say, oh, he just likes the music. Well, you know, it's it's Knoxville, Tennessee. I mean, there are going to be all kinds of honky-tonks and yes, the juke joints over in the segregated parts of town that he could go to for music. He, he chooses to make it spirituals and to make it a church on purpose. Yeah, And and those are the kind of things, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, where it can really... And that's one of the reasons we didn't get to this question, but I think that, you know, reverends or priests often come off badly but you have that fascinating dialogue with the ex-priest in the crossing, which is one of my favorite passages in all. I mean, the, you know, you're on your podcast, you often ask people, you know, what are their favorite McCarthy novels? And for me, I mean, the crossing is yeah, pretty consistently at the top. Not that I think it's his best in some kind of, you know, technical critical sense, but my gosh, I love reading that book so yeah. much. And in part of it, because of that dialogue between the ex-priest and the telling the story of how he came to to kind of gain his humanity by losing his orthodoxy, by losing yeah. his, well, losing his liberal orthodoxy by this confrontation with this man in a ruined church. And I think that yeah. is, to me, that you you won't find that without finding it in poets and novelists and filmmakers who are yeah. who are daring. Well, and even even when you read a let's say a popular evangelical book about how to be you know better Christian at this or better at that, it's always told by narratives. Mm-hmm. I know a guy in my church, and he did this and he did that. And usually, you're reading it with a little bit of a jaundiced eye and saying, "Yeah, sure, you knew that guy." <laughs> you know, we're just right. much in the way that the, you know that the preacher in the pulpit does. Or there was a guy named Chris, and he was saying da da da. But really, I had to talk to you know, and sometimes. 
you may think that's really based on a real conversation or something happened, or sometimes you've seen it, the email that came through exactly. telling the story, and you know they've appropriated it for the pulpit. Oh, I but, know. You know they're, rank, they're having to crank them out every Sunday, so you can't can't judge it too much for that. Although that we in the teaching sphere are very used to having to absolutely. You know, I don't have much the, Yeah, the so I I think that there is that constantly spiritual questioning. I think if you, it's much like if someone is conservative and they want to read McCarthy that way, you can find the evidence of it. And if you're very liberal and you want to read him that way, you can find evidence of it because it's all there. Mm-hmm. But it, part of the problem is you're coming in with a certain uh, prescription and wanting it to conform the text to conform to your vision. And he's, like I said, he's a cipher. He wants you to work at it. He's not going to open himself up just easily for you. Yeah, he cre- I, th- I think if I had to sum it up, I mean, I think among other things, right, right, right at the heart of the reason you should read, right, is that you need to be troubled in this way. You need to be drawn in. You need those unembrations of the spirit, but you also need to just be have your perspective forcibly altered. <laughs> and, right. the, and McCarthy does that as well as anyone. Scott, thank you so much for this. I'm hoping we'll get to talk again at some point, uh, either about maybe the last novels or the crossing or something. I'd, I'd love to, to do a deep dive on any one of those, but I really appreciate you making time, especially given how busy you are with everything at the school. So thank you for that. Well, I really appreciate you having me and uh, hopefully I can get you on Rita McCarthy sometime. So I'd love that too. I mean, it, I'm a super fan for the podcast, so that'd be great. Great. Talk to you soon. Take care.